This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. A senseless chain of correspondences is how Joan Didion described the events leading to the deadly summer of 1969. The scattershot happenstances of disconnect and dread that only in retrospect appeared to be an interlinked and inevitable constellation of events leading to the end of all things 60s and the beginning of hazy murk that was 1970. In this light, she writes, all connections were equally meaningful and equally senseless. Equally meaningful and equally senseless, huh? Sounds an awful lot like a deep dive convo into a little movie you might be familiar with. The kind of talk that surfs from topic to topic, riding waves of connections that you didn't even know were there until you hear them falling out of your mouth and into another's ears. A vast lattice of meaning that only grows deeper with each viewing and each conversation. And maybe it is all a senseless chain of correspondences in the end. But old Joan also said that in the jingle jangle morning of that summer, it made as much sense as anything else did. Okay, there are inherent vice fans out there, and I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast that you're one of them, but then there's today's guest, who has not only been loudly, vociferously stanning the film since December of 2012, and for those of you keeping track with your home abacus, that's exactly two years before the film was actually released, but since its release... She has also been declaring Vice as Paul Thomas Anderson's masterpiece with the same feverish intensity. And she has been rabidly defending the film ever since. If you look her up on Twitter and type in Inherent Vice, and you are going to see a manifesto in defense of this amazing film. And as such, I am so, 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 so excited to dig into today's scene with her. A writer and critic for Screen Rant, Pajiba, and Sci-Fi Fangirls, as well as the co-host of The Hollywood Read, Kaylee Donaldson, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I will take that intro. It's the first time that, like, vociferous fangirlism's actually paid off for something. <laughs> and, yeah, hey, and, and manifestos, too. I like that. I was, I was happy <laughs> to throw that in. A vociferous fangirl manifesto in defense of Inherent Vice. That's a good tattoo. You should get that, like, on your arm or something. <laughs> That's the inevitable title for the essay collection I'll try to pitch to a publisher somewhere. Hot damn. Well, as long as I get a royalty cut, I'm cool with giving you the title. <laughs> I, won't, I, won't make, I won't make any bones about that, I promise. The freewheeling so, starts now. <laughs> so you were obviously a ready-made fan before you even saw the film. Uh, I rem you know, on Twitter, you were talking about it. Anytime news dropped about it, casting news, anything like that, you were... Your excitement was there. It was palpable. Uh, I'm assuming you read the book beforehand? I did read the book beforehand. I'd also previously read The Crying of Lot 49. I actually haven't read a massive amount of a pinch on. He's always one of the, the more intimidating writers to, to approach. 
yeah. I did, when I did my undergrad degree, I did partly in English literature, and he was just one of those writers that was very scary, and all his books were very large, <laughs> and I was too busy reading uh, queer poetry and you know dirty theatre from the Restoration era to get to Pinchon. So I didn't really get to him until after I graduated in 2012. But I was and still am a massive fan of both Paul Thomas Anderson and Joaquin Phoenix. So following on from the master, this news that, oh, Paul Thomas Anderson is making this Inherent Vice film. Originally Robert Downey Jr. And it's like, oh, I like him. This sounds really cool. And it would just build from there with every announcement. So by the time that I actually got around to seeing it, I had read the book and I had kind of built up like my research going into this. I wanted to go in having done all of my homework. Uh, and I didn't see it until uh, January 2015, because that was when it got a British release. Mm-hmm. And I was all in on this thing immediately. It was just a delight that it had been even better than I had hoped it had been because I try not to build up expectations for myself with stuff like this because it fails most of the time. And it didn't for this. And then I was not surprised, but still incredibly disappointed that every time I tried to excitedly discuss this film with someone, people either hadn't seen it, which wasn't that big a surprise, or the ones who had seen it either really didn't like it or were just sort of middling on it my favorite description of it uh, i went out to drinks with a friend once and he'd said so you know how you love that radiohead make all these incredible wild experimental albums but you still really wish they'd go back and remake the bends that's how i feel about paul thomas anderson <laughs> and heron vice it's like i get that but the more he became this sort of strange freewheeling you know head in the clouds or head in the smoke sort of storyteller where he was less concerned with appealing to uh, the sort of conventional narratives and ideas of structure or even the one of the things I love about the master is it's so abrasive like he really does not care if you like that film or not or if you don't find it as funny as he does or as strange and psychosexual as he does and I had that similar thing with Inherent Vice but on a much more kind of vaguely calmer scale but I think that the, the paranoia of the film is the thing that sticks with me every time I rewatch it especially um the first thing I wanted to do after I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was watch Inherent Vice again, because it was this interesting <laughs> flip side of the same coin of like, yeah, of of the idea of of exploring hippie culture and the really deep seated uh, racism and darker side within it. Because Tarantino hates hippies, like he is very damn you kids get off my lawn in that film. Whereas I think an Inherent Vice PTA likes them and has more affection for them, but isn't blind to the fact that by this point in history they the dream has kind of died off and you see the uselessness for what was at the, the the heart of what seemed to be the dream. So you just have a lot of like, you know, people like, like Doc Sortello, who is at his heart is probably a very decent guy and a very, you know, who's very good at his job. But a lot of that idealism has just gone up in smoke, literally and metaphorically. <laughs> well, first, my God, Kaylee, you should be hosting this show. Um <laughs> I'm going to go, like, walk out for a drink. I'm just going to ask you one more question, and I'm just going to let you rip, and you go. Um, but, uh, no, I, I agree with you, and I, my gosh, there's so much to work with there. I would, starting with what you ended with, I would say I think that there's also, I don't think you're wrong about the perception or portrayal of the hippie culture in this film, but I do think that something that PTA does in it that is so touching to me is there's such an empathy for these for what I think he sees as these lost souls and there's an acknowledgement that they they owe some culpability in the massive fuck up that is the transition from 1969 to 1970 but there's also an empathy for them and that's something that I think is in all of his films even the 
the post punch drunk love films like there will be blood and the master and phantom thread which they feel a bit on the colder end of the emotional spectrum at times when you compare them to stuff like boogie nights and magnolia and punch drunk but i think that that said that there is still a warmth in there and there's an empathy for these characters even with something like the master i think freddie quell is a character that that pta really sympathizes with and the movie sympathizes with and I think for me, that's one of the reasons I keep coming back to this. And one of the many reasons is the empathy with which these characters are portrayed. But I was talking recently to the film critic, Anna Swanson, and she's also a huge fan of the film. And we're talking about how we keep coming back to Inherent Vice and that 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 seems to be a habit of the people who love this film. There are a lot of movies out there that people love, but they're not compulsively rewatching them. Um, Inherent Vice seems to be a film where if you're a fan of this movie, it's on your TV, it's on your laptop. God help me. I hope it's not on your phone, but it's, it's on some device constantly. You're endlessly rewatching it. Oh, great. I mean, for a two hour, 40 minute movie, it is (laughs) incredibly rewatchable and there is something oddly soothing I find about watching it it's a film that I can sit down drop everything and focus in on it entirely it's something I can even have as kind of an interesting like almost aura in the back of my mind while I'm trying to do something else um which is sacrilege to to PT I apologize but there is something about it that I find um incredibly approachable and I know that it's weird for to say it because for a lot of people this is Paul Thomas Anderson at his least approachable, which is interesting to me when people say that, because I would argue the master can make a better case for that. Although I'm, I go, you know, all doors open for PTA in general. What I find so, I, I agree with you on the idea of the empathy of, of these characters in his films. And I think that's something Anderson does great. He loves a sad sack. He loves a loser. He loves a kind of strange figure. <laughs> he does I love mean, a sad sack. He, the, like the, what he, you know, the, 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 the empathy that he has for Freddie Quell and the master alone, who is just, the most upsetting human being who does the weirdest things and pulls so many toilets <laughs> off of walls in his lifetime. I don't know how many. Uh, and I think this is what's really interesting as well, partly about Inherent Vice is at the centre of it, you have who's this character who is probably one of the more normal, um, quote-unquote normal protagonists he's really had in the film. He is essentially just like a pretty decent dude who has stoned off his tits 24-7 and that's skewed his sense of not even right and wrong, just reality. And you have, I, I maintain this is Joaquin Phoenix's best performance. I love this performance so much. And now that Joker is still out there and is making all this money and the discourse continues around it. And I've seen so many people saying, oh, Joker is Joaquin Phoenix's best performance. He's so good at playing dark and intense and messed up characters. And it's like, you should watch the one where he plays like a genuinely nice guy who doesn't wear shoes. Because he's so <laughs> incredibly, I think that's the most him performance. Just the fact that he refuses to wear shoes. I, re- I feel like he's like that in real life. But the way that he just feels so at home and so off kilter every moment that performance is the human embodiment of what seems to be the problem officer like just someone who's trying so hard to be sober at every possible moment but (laughs) doing the the face that you do when you're trying to be you know i'm totally normal my eyes are very wide and i'm nodding very seriously my shoulders are very straight back as everything spirals around me um and that's one of the things that Another thing that really draws me to the film, there was a great film comment interview that Anderson did around the time this film came out. And he made a comment to the effect of when I'm watching a film, the only thing I care about are the actors. 
And you see that in Inherent Vice. I know Vice. exactly he what you're how, talking about. I mean, he's always known how to, to populate an ensemble. He always has an incredible eye for talent, whether it is, you know, an old favorite character actor or someone who has this really specific persona and he uses that to his effect, like, like Adam Sandler and Punch Drunk Love, or just the bit part players. And so much of Inherent Vice is bit part players. And I can't think of a single person in this film where I think, oh, they, they, they maybe don't seem right for the role. It's just sublime across the board. It is. It is amazing casting. And I agree with you. I was doing something the other day where, um, because I'm just a, I'm a complete nerd and I love this film. And I love film noir. Um, I was, I was thinking about who would I cast in this film if it were to be made in say like 1945, like who are the classic film noir performers that I would want to see in this? And again, I feel like saying this out loud does make me sound like a crazy person because like, I don't know why, why anyone would pass the time by just going, you know, maybe it should be John Garfield. Um, but I, in, in doing this, this bizarre exercise, I was really looking at the cast list going, God, this thing top to bottom, this casting is just pristine. You know, and and I and I think it says something about PTA stature that he can essentially get Martin Short for a walk on. He can get Eric Roberts for, you know, a four minute cameo where he just sits in a chair and he waves at the camera. Um, and I love that he, he so smartly knows that if you're going to have all of these, these this very film noir trope of an of a character that basically is going to show up for one scene and tell you something that contradicts what another character just told our lead, that you need to have a face the audience is going to know. You might not remember their very pension-esque name of like Three Plea or Ensenada Slim, <laughs> but you're going to go, Jesus Christ, was was that Eric Roberts? That was Eric Roberts. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'll, I, I can remember that. I got that. And I love I love that he does that. Also, I want to swing back around to the, 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 the what you just said and... I don't know if it's too late. I'm going to have to talk to my producer, but Stoned Off His Tits might be a better name for this podcast <laughs> than Increment Vice. Um, that's a you new are one free to me. take that one. <laughs> but um, yeah, you, you can have the title to the book that we mentioned earlier, but if I can have Stoned Off His Tits, uh, an Inherent Vice podcast, that just has a ring to it, I think. And it's going to get people's attention. It's um, a deal. <laughs> well, all right. We're, we're really, this is a very productive <laughs> meeting so far. Um <laughs> I do have to say, though, just in terms of how perfectly cast this thing is, that's why I will forever remain somewhat baffled that the original choice for Doc was Robert Downey Jr. I don't see it. I see him being maybe a little more focused on the noir aspect of it, but I don't mm -hmm. see him being really fully ingrained in that setting or those mutton chops or the entire Neil Young cosplay. <laughs> um, well, like, this... I like Robert Downey Jr. I mean, he's kind of stopped trying since he became Tony Stark Incorporated, but that entire... You know, the particular aura that Joaquin Phoenix gives out, I have a theory that the more he mumbles in a movie, the better the movie is, which is another reason I think this is his masterpiece, because it is just constant slurring in the best way. It's like this One, and Lynn Ramsey get it. Oh, I was, that's exactly what I was going to say. One of my favorite um, cinema tropes of the 21st century um, is when a director has the audacity to go, you know what? What if we give all of our massive expositional dialogue to the most mumble-mouthed actor of this generation? <laughs> like, I love uh, You Were Never Really Here is one of my favorite films of this decade. It is oh, it's neck and neck it's with, with Inherent Vice. But I love that he is downright unintelligible in that film. 
and I the perversity then I guess spoilers of Lynn Ramsey to then include a scene in which his character is shot through the cheek and his entire face is swollen and he's got a mouthful of broken teeth and then he has to start talking about a mysterious senator and uh, you know a sex ring and he's downloading all of this important information and you have no fucking idea what he's saying it just sounds like <laughs> he sounds like Char- he sounds Sorry, like charlie brown's parents uh, whenever he <laughs> talks he's like rrr, rrr. and i love that both pta and lim ramsey have totally embraced the idea of like you know no one cares about exposition you basically get it he's a good guy those are the bad guys he's gonna say some stuff just so we can get from x to y to z but i love that they don't care like you said you know uh pta cares about actors and i love sitting in an audience a darkened audience and you see you see the people who just aren't, they don't get it. And you see them just looking at each other, frustrated, and look, looking around the rest of the theater to see if it's anyone else understands what's happening. I mean, but that's really that... the big problem with Joker. He's just speaking too much in it in general. There's, there's too much talking in Joker. You should have got rid of all of it. But not only is he mumbling throughout Inherent Vice, he has the voice of a valley boy, which I think is always a surprise for people. I think they expect Joaquin Phoenix to talk with a much kind of deeper and more serious voice and he doesn't sound like that at all he is short and he speaks like a valley boy who is actually <laughs> stoned off his head so that's another reason i think it's so perfect for inherent vices i just get the feeling he probably did roll out of bed and turn up on set somewhere and was just like give me my vegan tacos and my skateboard and then we can do this so i i want sure. more of that from him to be honest i'm very excited to see what this mike mills film is that he's going to be doing well i was gonna say he's short he's a valley boy and he stoned off his tits if that's not the title of his autobiography, <laughs> then, you know, what are we doing this for? But with that, that has been like that... one of my favorite things as well is just with Joker getting as big as it has, there's been a whole new like era of stan culture on Twitter and Tumblr for Joaquin Phoenix, which was me when I was 15. Like that is a whole other conversation to be had. <laughs> but re- discovering them, the, watching them all discover the same things, which is he's short his brother was River Phoenix and he was in a Disney movie has been an endless delight to me, except for the River Phoenix connection because that just makes me feel old. But the other stuff has been great fun. <laughs> well, I think we are going to be doing a Joaquin Phoenix Thirst bonus episode. For oh, all is the this with Rihanna? Because I'm jealous that she got it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we might make it a round table. We'll see. Oh, but... like seriously, I had all of his movies. I had, like, including, like, Space Camp and the one where he's a pornography seller with Nick Cage. I had all of them. My own brother Bear had posters. I had a calendar. I had all the magazine clippings. Like, that was my... Kaylee, Kaylee, (laughs) you got to be careful. You're going to end up on an FBI watch list before this episode is even over. You got to slow down. You got to slow down here. You're going to get us in trouble. You're going to get us both in trouble. It Um, is. Uh, that and uh, the comedy show Whose Line Is It Anyway were just what I obsessed over for all of my adolescence. I am a woman with many, many layers, and some of them have paid off to this day. Not all, but some. Oh, my God. We're going to both end up arrested by the end of this. But on that note, um, I'm very excited to have a writer of your stature and an inherent vice fan of your intensity on for today's scene, because it's a sequence that, for me, it contains both both of the film's tonal extremes side by side you know, on one hand you have the weird pot fogged melancholy of doc and dinas um walking to pipeline pizza and talking shasta with sort of liege you've got all that on one side and on the other side you have this zany kind of comic tableau uh in, in which a detective is pestering his aunt reet 
while watching a commercial for a Mickey Wolfman concept that's anchored by his arch nemesis, Bigfoot, all while he's stoned and possibly uh, hallucinating. And to me, that's so the film in microcosm, these two poles communicating with each other, this very kind of heavy, depressed, melancholic scene, and this incredible just like goofball, something out of the naked gun scene on the other. And you have them just speaking to each other while along the way, the the entire sequence is dropping all these random, weird, wild little hints that uh, if you're not paying attention, you'll miss. Like the fact that Sorlige may not be real as she's sitting in Pipeline Pizza and no one seems to be acknowledging her existence but Doc. And then you have stuff like at the end of the Aunt section in which there's this implication that Doc and Bigfoot have a deeper connection than just some kind of Tom and Jerry antithesis. And for those who are willing to tune into the film's weird wavelengths, uh, the structural vocabulary of this entire sequence, I feel like it kind of teaches us how to ride the waves of the rest of the film, from the crests of all the comic highs to the the wipeouts of the heart-bruising despair and longing that I think really surprised people throughout. And that's why I'm so excited to have you for this, because I think you're really going to go wild and dig in here. Again, if the FBI isn't already, like, you know, (laughs) crashing my door down and well, all uh, this all this smoke talk didn't do it but my my adolescent problems did that that would explain a lot yeah. <laughs> all right on that note we're going to take a look at this sequence and we'll be back in a moment doc ran through all the things he hadn't asked shasta like how much he'd come to depend on wolfman's guaranteed level of ease and power and least askable of all how passionately did she really feel about old mickey Hey, what's up, Doc? Hey, Jeans. What's up, man? What's going on? Mm-hmm. You Doc knew the likely reply. I love him. What else? With the unspoken footnote that the word these days was being way too overused. You hungry? My God's list says tomorrow, man. Let's go eat someplace. So when Doc and Dinas came in that night, it wasn't just the usual hungry doper thing. It was something else. And with Neptune moving at last out of the Scorpio death trip and rising into the Sagittarian light of the higher mind, it was bound to be something love-related. And I thought I knew what it was. So... She stuck her head in for a minute. Mm-hmm. You feeling broken up? Yeah, kind of weird seeing her again, you know. Yeah, I figured next time I saw her be on the team, not in person. Oh, you better do something about this. <laughs> yeah, again? Can't tell you enough. Change your hair, change your life. Mm. Mm. Well, what do you recommend? It's up to you. Follow your intuition. Yes, honey, make it quick. I got a live one tonight, and I totally fucked up my face. Oh, okay. Uh, Mickey Wolfman, what can you tell me? Powerhouse in L.A. real estate. From the desert to the sea. 
technically Jewish, but wants to be a Nazi. What's he to you? Possible case. Say I wanted to hang out and rap with this wolf man. Say it's a really bad idea. He goes around with a dozen bikers, mostly Aryan Brotherhood alumni. Whoa, uh, I like social studies, but uh, Jews and Aryan Brotherhood. There's something about hatred? No, Mickey's eccentric. More and more lately. I'd say stoned out of his fucking mind since he discovered drugs. No offense to you, Doc. Well, so wh where would I uh, find him, like accidentally? Try the Channel View Estates, his latest insult to the environment. The the one that uh, Bigfoot Bjornsson does the commercials for? That's the one. Mm -hmm. Maybe your old cop buddy's the one who should be taking care of your case. Yeah, well, I did think about going to Bigfoot with this, but just as I reached for the phone, history and all, I thought, Ooh. Well, maybe you're better off with the Nazis. <laughs> all right, all right. I got major liquid liner issues. I, I gotta get off now, Larry. Hey, man. I don't want you paying rent. Rent's a hassle. I want to see you in your own pad. Howdy, Bigfoot. The Channel View Estates, Artesia's newest and grooviest residential housing development. No buzzkill credit checks. No rip-off minimum down payments. That's not your bag. But check this out. Fully equipped kitchen with automatic self-cleaning oven and breakfast nook. Out of sight. Attached one car and available two-car garage. And best of all, a view of the Dominguez flood control channel that can only be described in two words. Right on. What's up, Doc? Oh, ah, eat. You know, I I don't want to derail the episode here. I don't want to be weird. Do you kind of just want to skip the rest of this podcast and then just watch the rest of the movie? Like, I mean, that's my mood on most days anyway. I I put the film on a couple of days ago to watch for researches for this and ended up just sort of stopping everything else I was doing and watching it again, which, you know, once again, it's a two-hour, 40-minute film. It's not really <laughs> something you can start late at night before you go to bed. Um, it is not really some. I mean, it is pretty easy to watch in bite-sized elements because it is so kind of not necessarily episodic, but it does have that noir structure of like, let's go meet this person, then let's go meet this person, and so on. So you can watch these scenes separately if you are interested. But I just find the whole package too alluring to to look away from. And that's something that I uh, I didn't realize until doing the show, and I I started breaking the film up into these modular pieces like all right this is going to be a scene and this is going to be a scene i'm going to count these two little things as a scene and it's incredible to me you know it can be sometimes you know the way the way doc describes the golden fang it's just so vast and sometimes that's how i felt about the film where it's so vast because i you know i've written about it before and it, it took a lot out of me to do that because the film just feels like it is so big and it contains so much emotion and so much plot. But when you break it down into these little five to ten minute mini movies, you realize just how amazing this thing is and how well made it is and how each little short story builds to a larger whole. And I've actually I've really enjoyed watching it kind of piecemeal, which is a weird way to watch a film. But this is a film that I think w was made for weirdness and actually watching it 
like a puzzle sometimes it's quite enjoyable just to like skip ahead you know you know i'm just gonna watch the tariq khalil scene so just for giggles i'm just gonna watch that scene or i'm just gonna go to the topanga house for a while and i'm just gonna watch koi and doc talk about america as a mom strung out on heroin that's what i'm gonna do today and it really plays well like that um you know that said you know i do recommend just watching the film from start to finish as many times as possible it might be a sickness but it's a really fun sickness (laughs) I, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I think one of the reasons that works is just, as we said earlier, is Anderson just has such a great eye for actors and character. And every single scene when you meet someone who's here for two or three minutes, you get such a great read on who that person is instantly. I mean, the scene we just watched, you meet Jeannie Berlin for, what, 90, 100 seconds, if that? <laughs> and you know everything about this woman from the, the cheap blonde wig where you can still see her dark hairs underneath it to whatever accident happened it made her ruin her eyeliner that badly to what it means when she's got a live one tonight and the, <laughs> the little bounce that she has, and, you know the full body bounce that she has yes honey make it quick i got a live one tonight and i fucked up my face i and you know i forget that's Jeannie berlin every single time i watch the film i'm like oh yeah Jeannie berlin she's in this movie uh, but because it is such like a blinker you'll miss it moment I, and, I, I never forget it's her just because she sounds exactly like Elaine May. <laughs> and I could never shake that. It's like, oh yeah, you are Elaine May's daughter and you look and sound exactly like your amazing mother. Well, in true Inherent Vice fashion, let's let's do this a little sideways and let's start with the end of the, the sequence. And let's talk a little bit about Reet. Um, I love this idea. And it's something that's also in the book, as you know. That the first place that this knockabout detective goes for information is to his mom's older sister. You know, if you've seen as way too many films noir, way too many neo-noirs, that you know that the detective's next move is to find some street-hardened snitch or a contact in the LAPD. But Doc goes for his aunt. He just calls his aunt. He doesn't leave the house. He's watching cartoons. He's high. He's giving himself a self-perm, and he's just going to call Aunt Reed. And, you know, there's, uh, in a recent retrospective about his really amazing neo-noir, high school neo-noir film, Brick, Ryan Johnson was talking about this trope, about how there, and he says, there's this hermetically sealed social world, and you have this phase where the detective is trying different angles of pinging the outside, trying to get in. And he said, the only visual representation I can think of is that it's like the sperm trying to get into the egg. (laughs) <laughs> and he's not gathering clues or doing anything clever with a magnifying glass. He's going around and annoying people until one of them says something that leads him to the next person he can annoy. There's really no plan. And that that line really struck me. There's really no plan. That sounds to me so much like Doc. He's just going to go around pinging people and pestering people until they can give him something he wants. And it just so happens that Reet knows real estate, so he pesters her. But I love that right off the bat, there is a subversion of film noir tropes that he's not going to go, he's not going to go talk to Bigfoot at the glass house. He's going to call his aunt and see if maybe she knows something. He's just going to call his mom's sister. And it's, that's, I don't know, it's adorable to me, and I love it. I love the idea as well that the person who knows everything in this world, the one who's like, is that sort of grizzled man of the world as it would be in noir, is this wonderful kind of old broad who clearly has, you know, goes on the, goes on our nights out very regularly and has probably has a seat in every, you know, CD bar on on the beachfront in Los Angeles. And of course she would know everything and everyone. And I think that that's just such an interesting way to take it. It's so much better than, you know, the 
the guy in the fedora who probably exactly. the corner to me. And that's why isn't it, that's back to that point about I think PTA and and this film being kind of disinterested in generic exposition. And so to move that entire trope to umbrella a scene of a stoned nephew watching cartoons and calling his mom's big sister, it's brilliant to me. And also, just for the pension nerds out there, REIT, in typical pension linguistic density fashion, is it's an old uh, it's an old North England slang term. Do you, do you do you know this? That means right. It means correct. And apparently, it was still a colloquialism in LA of the late 1960s. I learn a lot hosting this show, Kaylee. <laughs> I learn a lot. Um, it's also a, a play on the anagram REIT, R E I T which is uh, stands for Real Estate Investment Trust, which is the kind of company that would buy malls and office parks and apartments in communities like Channel View Estates. How is this interesting? It's not. But because it's in my head, I have to disseminate it to, to all of you to get it out. And I just had to say that and throw that out there. It's the kind of thing you're going to learn when you come to increment vice, including the fact that um, the FBI and Joaquin Phoenix are probably going to be bringing Kaylee up on charges <laughs> any, any day now. I mean, one of the things that I find so sort of like simultaneously really alluring and really uh, unapproachable about Pinchon is even just stuff like the names, because you think, oh, God, there must be all this symbolism and all this, you know, linguistic undertones to it that give away so much. But also the names are just really funny. And I think that's another thing that (laughs) Pinchon doesn't really get a lot of credit for. I mean, for one of the great most complex, most challenging writers of the 20th century. He loves a fart joke. He loves a shit joke. He loves pot jokes. This entire film is basically an excuse to do like a Cheech and Chong sequel with some of the references and the way that it unfolds. He is this wonderful mix of high and low class. And I think that that's one of the reasons Inherent Vice is his most approachable text in a way. If you really want your starter pinch on, I would say this even more than The Crying of Lot 49, which has the benefit of it being short. Because this is basically the long goodbye, but and in the structure of it is identical to to a noir and it has all of those layers and it has all these really interesting themes and all of these you know wonderful elements that you could dissect for days but if all you want is this just really enjoyable funny story you can get that from it as well uh, i think that's how they tried to market the film i remember that really wonderful first trailer where they play sam cook and it, they kind of make it seem a bit wackier than the film actually is but it's i see why it was really easy to get that from this material you could kind of easily turn this into you know the sheer physicality of walking phoenix like pratfalling alone is another reason i like this film like the man is such a good pratfaller and such a good like str- i mean he has a really strange twisted body anyway if you've seen you are yeah, never he really here the Joker weird is a great twist. Topicist. Oh yeah, I don't think any actor uses their posture as effectively as he does in films. And just for this, like he does move half the time like he is willing himself to have bones in his body to keep his form upright. And it's just stuff like that that is really on a baseline funny as hell. And it's really funny <laughs> that there are characters called Bigfoot Bjornsson and Sergeant Legend, all and these things Aub- that don't make Aubrey Threepley and uh, Insensata Sim. And, you know, to your point, I think you're right just to... Uh, audience please know this is a this is a podcast about inherent vice there is going to be nothing but conversational cul-de-sacs and digressions throughout <laughs> we're going to be taking a lot of side roads uh, we're going to be getting off pch and taking a lot of side roads along the beach on the way to the end of this thing but i think you're so right that um a uh, 
Joaquin is an amazing physical comedian. And I it's it's funny. I don't think we we don't think of him as such because I think we see him as a fairly brooding, serious actor who doesn't like to talk in interviews. But, you know, the eternal image, uh, the the brain gif that is constantly playing behind my eyelids over and over when I think about this film is the little twist he does and the series of rabbit punches he throws <laughs> when he takes one of Adrian Prussia's baseball bats to the back of the head when he's at Chick Planet, you know, the, with all the purple walls and everything. He just spins around and does that little rabbit punch and then he falls. Who else is doing that? Like, that's, that's Bugs Bunny stuff. That's Daffy Duck stuff. And I love that he throws that out there. And I also think you're right that if there's anything that maybe hurt this film uh, with audiences in 2014... I think it was the fact that the trailer definitely makes this film feel like the Naked Gun or an airplane movie. And um, I also think it's of note, I believe it was the first trailer for one of his films in quite a while that PTA himself did not cut. And it was out, outsourced to an advertising company. And, you know, you, but at the same time, that's what makes the film such a wonderful gut punch. If you don't know much about it, you're going to it, you're like oh it's gonna be like a Lebowski-esque you know uh you know stoner romp and instead it's almost something like Cutter's Way where it's this kind of emotionally annihilative and just despairing film about what it is to lose someone and to lose something that matters and I almost like it better that way I like the idea of people going to see this very uh goofy high comic no again no pun intended uh high comedy and instead they're they're served this nearly three hour platter of malaise and sad neil young songs and missing an ex-girlfriend who you really shouldn't be in love with in the first place because she's only gonna hurt you, but you can't let her go i love that that's the sucker punch that this film pulls and i think that actually in a weird way the off kilter and not entirely accurate marketing almost gives the film an extra punch when you watch it. Oh, yeah. And other elements of the marketing I love so much. Like, I want every poster they ever released All of those film. illustrated posters. I want them so I'm, badly. I'm, I'm trying so hard. <laughs> I'm currently decorating my... Uh, I just moved in any place last month, and I'm currently decorating and have bought a couple, like, fancy canvas print posters. I got the Polish poster for Sunset Boulevard. I got... Uh, one for cocktails, la belle, la belle. I'm going to get an inherent vice one. I just need to decide which one and where I'm going to put it. I'm looking at the blank spot in my wall where it's probably going to go. But it's going to happen. Like, I've made myself that promise. Um, I hate. I kind of hate using this phrase because I feel like it's such a, a critic cliche. But, like, there is something about the film that teaches you how to watch it and what to expect from it. And you think you get that with the Aunt Reed scene, scene as well. It's like, oh, this is a conventional or it seems to be a very conventional noir in its structure and its approach, but it's also informing you, like, this film is not supposed to make sense. The entire point of the mystery is not going to make sense. And you get that the moment you hear someone is technically Jewish but wants to be a Nazi, <laughs> which is just a great line. And also just the way that she casually throws off, well, maybe you're better off with the Nazis. Yeah, is with just that great voice. Line as well. She has a great voice. She has a the voice of like a proper old school broad. And I just, yeah. I, if she was a narrator as well, I wouldn't mind it. No offense to the exquisite Joanna Newsom, who I love in this film. I think she is kind of the perfect PTA muse on one hand, but also if you need someone if, to play a character who's maybe not real and is maybe the manifestation of like 
of you know pop fueled fantasy about the perfect fairy godmother in your life. I would I would probably get Joanna Newsom as well. She's someone that's just so pitch perfect for that era. She just seems straight out of straight off the beach of 1969. It's perfect. Well, let's reach back for a minute because this is I think going to be a, a major thread that winds its way throughout the podcast. Let's talk about Sorlige for a moment. Speaking of which, um you know, we see her interacting with Doc for the first time in this scene when they're sitting next to one another at Pipeline Pizza while Dennis and Ensenada Slim and all their friends are just, you know, wolfing it, wolfing the slices down on the other side of the table. And it's worth noting that Doc is the only character we're ever going to see her interact with. She doesn't make eye contact with anyone else. She doesn't speak to anyone else. And as everyone else is eating, you know, she tells them, change your hair, change your life. And when he asks her, you know, well, what do you suggest? And she said, you know, it's up to you. Follow your intuition. And I'm curious, what do you make of Sword of Liege? You know, I, the more I watch this, the more I do find her to be like his inner Jiminy Cricket. That, that I don't, I'm not convinced anymore that she's an actual live-breathing character the way she is in the novel. And I see her more as literally that. When she says, follow your intu intuition, I feel like she's Doc's for lack of a better term, she's his gut. She's his intuition. She's his inner voice telling him to keep pushing and go forward. Do you do you see her as a real person? I mean, the more I watch the film, the less convinced I am that she's real. And I think this is one of the things that's so brilliant about that adaptation. It's actually a surprisingly straightforward adaptation of a very tangled book, but it's one that doesn't have a narrator. And the fact that he took this character and then not only made her the narrator of the story, but essentially makes her this kind of ethereal presence is such a smart move. Uh, I think that if she did exist at some point in his life, maybe, because there is a scene where Doc and Shasta have like their Ouija board, you know, pot session where they're looking for someone and then have their beautiful flashback, which is one of my favorite scenes. Uh, but even just the way that she narrates the story, like there are moments where it just seems like she's narrating his thoughts. Like when he meets someone and she's kind of like, oh, wow. Okay. Look who this is. And okay. Yeah. Uh, and it's just such a wonderful touch. It, it, it gives that sense of spontaneity, I think, that carries all the way through the film. There are moments when it, where you would think, I wouldn't be surprised if Paul Thomas Anderson just rolled up the camera in the extremely long, for the extremely long tracking shot and didn't know what was going to happen. And you get that with a lot of like recent Joaquin Phoenix movies. If you read any of the stories of the making of You Were Never Really Here, where it's just him and Lynn Ramsey like tearing up the script the night before and being like, what are we going to do tomorrow? It's like, it's fine, we'll figure it out. We'll do something later. And you get magic from it. And I, I think that's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated with him as an actor. It's just there is that sense of anything could happen. You get that with both of his Anderson movies. It's more explosive with uh, The Master. It seems more obvious with The Master. And I think it gets overlooked with Inherent Bites, that quality of just this feels like it could go off the rails at any moment or you could go down a strange dark route you've never gone before, but something's going to carry you forward anyway. And certainly she's just kind of perfect for that, whether she's real or not. And I personally don't think she is, but she's a getting voice for a lost person. But there's still and that reassuring kind of lilt to what she says and what she does. And just her presence, she just seems like, if I was going to imagine someone I needed to calm me down, I would probably imagine <laughs> Joanne Newsom too. Well, I mean, with that voice, I mean, it's very relaxing. She could make like an, she should get into the, a, what is the ASMR? She should get into the ASMR <laughs> racket. I feel like a lot of her records have that kind of ASMR yeah. quality. More the like Have One On Me album than the Ease album, which is very Baroque. But I like, this thing I've always kind of respected her more as a singer than I loved her. 
Like, I love that she exists and I love that someone is making the music that she does. But honestly, like her early albums, I think she sings like Lisa Simpson and I can't get over it. <laughs> uh, that's, that voice has changed over the years than a voice I like more. But just as like an acting presence, I wish she would do more. I don't know if it's something she's interested in or if she'll only pop up in like, you know, movies with Andy Samberg as a side character in, in Popstar or something, which is great. Um, but well, I, I, she's just addition. such a great kind of blues. In addition to the FBI knocking on your door any minute, I'm pretty sure uh, her Joanna Newsom's lawyers are going to be sending me a cease and desist letter any day now uh, for the contents of this podcast. You're really causing a lot of ruckus in my life. I just want you to know that. Um, well, like Doc, but... not here to make friends. I'm here to get the truth. <laughs> but uh, you said something earlier. You know, it's about about it being magic. Speaking of magic, I just wanted to say that um, the only time PTA has weighed in on the is sort of these real or not question was uh there was an interview and god i'm i'm gonna forget it now because i'm a horrible human being but uh there was an interview and i think it might have been for the la times where he was talking about a a, a reaction of a friend of his uh pta to watching an air vice for the first time and he just happened to bring up the scene when she's in the car with doc and they're driving the channel view estates and then there's a cut, and all of a sudden she's just not in the car. And the friend was kind of like, is she real? Is she not real? What was that about? But uh, more importantly, that's just so cool that you did that. That's just that's something you can only do in a movie. And you could never do that in a book. Like you can't you can't lay a sequence out like that in the book and just have the character blink out and the audience accept it. And all PTA would would kind of wryly say is he just smiled and said, Yeah, that's magic. That's magic. So that's his answer to the story question. That's magic. Um, which seems like a very, a very inherent vice, very PTA thing to say. It's magic. You figure it out. <laughs> and um, but speaking of Sword of Liege, uh, another reason that I, I love this film is the the beautiful, beautiful Robert Ellswood photography, and I that what it conveys in this early sequence as you see Doc walking away from Shasta. She's she's driving down the street. She's just dropped this grenade in his life. Uh, having walked back in his life, he's still clearly he's still clearly heartbroken over her and longing for her, telling her about her current boyfriend who happens to be married, and hey, can you get him out of a jam for me? Uh, as as Doc turns and he walks away from that, and you've got this beautiful purple pink dusk uh, fading into the night of the background. We just from like the texture of of the cinematography we feel like a pall has been cast um you know sort of leaves even notes uh about love that uh, the word these days was being way too overused there's this sense of things becoming transitory and insubstantial uh she even notes in the tra trailer we're talking about everything's gone from groovy to where you at man suggesting a high level of fear or discomfort with the way things are headed and it really, as we were talking earlier about how this film is teaching you how to watch it, I feel like in these moments, the film is really making it clear. This is not a mystery. This is a hangover film. This is this is the morning after movie about the pain you feel about something passing and and and, and kind of the, the ache that it leaves in its wake, which, as you said, I do think makes it a wonderful companion with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, even if they have very, very different distinct tones. 
Well, that's one of the reasons it ends up being such a perfect fit for a noir, because the whole point of a noir is you're really, like, the story isn't supposed to make sense. It's supposed to have that feeling of you're reading it and, like, I'm keeping up with this. I'm keeping note of every character every mm-hmm. moment. And then you stop and try and recount it in your head. It's like, oh, there, there's a guy and there's a thi- there's a woman and then he goes to a thing and then there's a bad guy and then there's, like, the MacGuffin. And, and it's about that's... disillusionment. It's about disillusionment. It's about, about things passing and the intractability of things and how you can't change them. And it just feels so perfect for that time, what's going on in history. And I think one of the reasons the film is so smart is it does touch on these issues very lightly. It doesn't need to hammer it home. It expects you to know a certain thing about that era. Like Reagan is going to come in and, you know, completely dominate the country soon. Uh, The Manson family have completely ruined the hippie dream. There is paranoia in the air. There's also uh, the legal and you know fbi infiltration of a lot of these counterculture movements and also the way that white supremacy has begun to bleed into them i mean the line of you know the fact that he's hanging around with the aryan brotherhood and every now and then you go to a different party and there's all these crazy happy and there just seems to be a guy with a swastika everywhere and no one is everywhere in this film and no one seems to raise their eyebrow the only bit is when he goes to the hospital and jefferson Mays, who is so just wonderfully strange in that performance where he's like is, is that a swastika oh no that's that's a hindu symbol for a piece because oh because i just thought it looked like a swastika and just it seems to have been readily accepted in this very nihilistic way uh that oh this is just the way things are now whatever we are holding on to of this idealism has gone and all we're really left with is the the fleeting joy of basically getting high and lost loves because you know, the people who did the really hard work of the counterculture movement are not really these people. These are probably the people who are going to put on a suit in five years' time and start complaining about how their taxes are too high. Maybe not Doc, but <laughs> certainly a lot of the people around him are going to be like that. A lot of the people around him are going to end up more like Bigfoot Bjornsson than they are like him, I think. We'll look at, we'll look at Shasta. She used to come up uh, up the back way wearing, uh, you know, a flower print bikini bottom and a Country Joe and the Fish t-shirt. And when she shows up today... She's all decked out in flatland gear, hair a lot shorter than it used to be, looking just like she swore she'd never look. Like, it's already happening. It's already happening, that intractable loss. And that's, that's I think, too, that's something that's so amazing and, and what makes the best noirs the best noirs is that there is this, they tap into this timeless feeling of disillusionment, no matter what era you live in. I think, you know, look at today. Like, this is a great film to watch today especially and it's like oh i guess we just have nazis around now like i guess we just have uh the aryan brotherhood they're just walking around now i guess like that's a thing they're here and we're we're just living with it and um you know even with the the fact that you know jesus mickey wolfman is a you know this this billionaire real estate hyper capitalist who's out of his out of his fucking mind on drugs hanging out with the aryan brotherhood and giving out rent free to uh, property hippies He's essentially Donald Trump if Trump developed a conscience was a, was a real billionaire, which he's not, by the way. Um, <laughs> and there are so many that's like all of the best noirs and the best films. I feel like Inherent Race is modular and that you can watch it in any era and it will connect to your era and it will reflect your era. And this this constant sense that we deal with this in the inherent vice of time itself that time is constantly changing things, that things are constantly being rearranged and made strange and unfamiliar. And more importantly, and, and most most importantly, most terrifyingly, that time is constantly taking things away from us. That's the only the only true constant 
is the inconsistency of everything else. And that to me, more than anything else, is what Inherent Vice is about. That is the motor that drives this strange plot and these sad characters, the awareness that everything is going to change. And for some of these characters, everything already has changed and is not coming back. Bigfoot's never getting Vincent and Delicato back. Um, you know, Doc, you know, is currently unsure if he's ever going to get Shasta back, but she's something that he's already lost once and it's, it's, it's ravaged him. And but even the darkness that Shasta unleashes in him when she returns and gives that incredible monologue where she, she basically says to him, do you want me to pretend to be like the Manson sex slavery? He doesn't say no. And then he like, <laughs> he's aggressively like, starts so you're the one stealing my yeah. magazines. And then, you know, the, and then they just like, he spanks her and they just have this very aggressive sex. Like, that's just another sign. This woman, you two are very, very wrong for each other in the most obvious ways. Any fantasy <laughs> you had wanted to hold on with her is kind of impossible to hold on to now. Even when she's returned to dressing like she used to, it feels like a costume. It feels almost as much as a, like a costume as, as Bigfoot. And is he wearing blackface in that video, in that ad with that? that fake afro because i no, think he's no, at least no. slightly it's, darker it's it's the resolute it's a very poor low resolution right. tv uh i just I, imagining I, bigfoot as someone who really does believe he's like method enough to do something like <laughs> no that. i think goodness no i and i've seen the behind the scenes pictures of brolin in that outfit there's there's no blackface it's just a really poor resolution tv on docs i don't part. think that's that's an accidental just the way that's done but even that i mean that scene as well just highlights another thing that makes this film such a great noir. So many of the great noirs, the real story is about the sort of development and corruption of certain places. Like how many noirs are basically about, you know, real estate or, you know, with Chinatown, yeah. it's like the water crisis and all of these things. And this one, it, it, even Who Framed Roger Rabbit, it's about the transport system. And this <laughs> one is about real estate. Um, What's sorely you say the long, sad history of LA land use? And, uh, you know, every, uh, people getting kicked out of Chavez Ravine so we could have Dodger Stadium. Yeah, and also even just what, one of the things that's so interesting to me is about the Bigfoot moment is I, I'm really sad that this one wasn't popular enough. If only so that could have replaced the Steve Buscemi, how do you do fellow kids as the ultimate meme? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, just a way that oh he Oh, my says, God, that'd be perfect. We're going to bring that back, you and I. We're going to get on Twitter <laughs> after this episode. And we're going to bring that back. We're going to get that started. You know, the way that they're pandering so right. to this, like, even they know that's the thing is the capitalist system knows that all of these people who are rejecting commodification and therefore free love and commune living and the ultimate dream of you know this free and implicitly socialist society no they're all going to sell out and buy these houses at some point with the the wonderful view of them <laughs> that they offer and but the way that they're selling it to them is the most incredibly trite and obviously fake hippie who exists i don't yeah. know if there's a squarer man on the planet than josh brolin they give him the square haircut to match in this film fortunately <laughs> just the way that he embodies like you know, civil rights violations this line that they have later in the film from sartilage it's so perfectly done uh, and i'm fascinated by the implications of his backstory with doc like what has happened between them where were their lives together at one point and where did they split off well, yeah, because uh, well, in the book, um, Bigfoot was a street cop. His his beat was Gordita Beach, and at that time, Doc was working as a skip tracer, uh, tracking people down for Adrian Prussia. And um, 
for a while, you get the sense that there was almost something like an allegiance between Doc and Bigfoot, or at least um, kind of what we see a bit later on in the film over pancakes, that these are two men who are used to working with each other and sharing cases and helping each other out when they can. And then, you know, something soured there. And then, we, you know, we later we find that what soured is that Bigfoot's life was thrown into total disarray by the murder of his partner, the LAPD sanctioned murder and Golden Fang sanctioned murder of his partner, Vincent Indelicato by Adrian Prussia. And my God, I got to whip out the whiteboard now to start keeping track of this. But, um, uh, and you will also get the sense that um, Bigfoot's marriage is probably not a happy one. I get the sense that his relationship with Vincent Indelicato was far more complicated than just uh, police partners, given how wantonly and painfully he was, will oh a banana uh when thinking oh, about so vincent beautiful. and helicotto it's it's maybe i cannot tell you when i started organizing this podcast and reaching out to people for guests the long line around the block that developed of people saying i'll do the show but i'm only going to do it if i can do the scene where he blows a banana i want <laughs> the scene where bigfoot blows the banana and, and also just well, um, Doc's reactions to it as well. Just this look on his face of, no, no, I'm actually seeing this. This, this is definitely not a hallucination. He is going to town on that banana. Mark Maron did his WTF podcast with Paul Thomas Anderson. And they sort of broke it down film by film. And, and Anderson gave his like explanation for the master and the relationship between um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix's characters and just... How, why they were, you know, so in, you know, joined together and their complexities and all these things. And then Mark Marin just says, "I was just waiting for them to fuck." Yeah, and I know, I, I know exactly. I know so that interview. Much as well, in terms of inherent vice, is just there is so much an element of like, oh, as it is with Penny, is you know, you're just going to get down with the dirty hippie, don't you? There's a base inside <laughs> you that really does just want to do that, uh, and I respect that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's there, and I also think that there's. You know, you know, God, we are over the place now in this film. But the second to last scene in which Doc and Bigfoot have their final confrontation in the film and Bigfoot is just wantonly eating all of Doc's weed. There's, <laughs> and the single you know, tear drop. Oh, God, that single tear. Uh, but but Doc calls him brother. He's, you know, he's like, oh, are you okay, brother? And I do think that there is a kinship between these two men. I think one of the the reasons that Bigfoot exists is because he is simply a larger than life counterpoint to what Doc is experiencing because this story is ultimately about people who lose people and can't get them back. And Bigfoot is just a funhouse mirror of Doc's heartbreak for Shasta, except instead of, you know, you know, Doc has the opportunity to, to try to save Shasta, to try and chase Shasta. If Shasta is actually really real as well. And there are certain scenes where I'm not sure about that either. But the thing is, the problem with Bigfoot, he can't get Vincent back. So he's, Bigfoot's lost. All he can, you know, he's, he's, there's no salvation for Bigfoot. And that scene, I know it's a funny one, but I won't lie. The more I watch this movie, I get a little lump in my throat when they start, they're so much on the same wavelength that they start having the same lines and the same conversation. Look, I'm sorry about last night. What do you have to be sorry about? And they just—they're speaking at the exact same time, thinking the exact same thoughts. That's how simpatico they've become, 
because well, he even Doc even seems a little bit forlorn when in the first scene where he talks about Doc at the when he's at the cafe and someone says, "Oh, um, Bjornsson was looking for you." And he goes, "Oh, he usually just kicks my door down." He's like, he almost seems a bit upset that his door didn't get. Well, kicked yeah, no, he 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 actually says, he's like, "Well, I wonder why he didn't just kick my door down like usual." Like, like, there's almost like a why didn't he come by? He was in town. You, he was in town. He didn't see me. Oh, I wonder why. Yeah, there is that feeling of like weirdly like they don't like each other, but maybe they love each other, and not even not love like romantically, but it's like they need each other. You know, I know. You, Joaquin was just recently in a film called Joker. They've almost got that Batman and Joker thing where like they both acknowledge the other needs to exist for them to keep going. They need this 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 other person in their life, and. Um, we're full on talking about Bigfoot now. I love that this is his introduction into the film is his, his scenes are bookended essentially by him trying and failing so badly to co-opt the hippie lifestyle. The film begins with him dressed as a hippie, trying to sell these shitty tract houses uh, next to the Dominguez flood control channel and speaking with all of these hippie colloquialisms that probably mean nothing to him they mean absolutely but he's so he's so lost and so looking for i think some kind of emotional security blanket to wrap himself in and so what does he choose he chooses doc and doc's life and he tries to be a hippie and that's exactly as i said the film is bookended with this where the very last time we see bigfoot he's trying to smoke pot he's literally absorb it by eating a plate full of it and he is so unsuccessful and stymied at that and that's both so so hilarious but just so sad for bigfoot at the same time and if you can't tell he is my favorite character and that's why i am i, I can't not go on and on about how hilarious i find it that he wants to be a hippie like doc even if he'd never even if he'd never cop to it but he also is just so bereft of a real sense of humor that he ends up being hilarious like when he says were you f-u-c-k-i-n-g-ing mm-hmm. or like his terrible hand actions where it's like he kind of knows what sex is but he's just sort of gonna jam his <laughs> finger against his hand for a while and that might be what sex is to him he's um, like a 13 even just when he's ordering pancakes i mean moto panakeku is just so sublime i want it on t-shirts i want my own line of pancakes of that line um, it's the most I've ever loved Brolin outside of maybe Gus Van Sant's milk, but he's just so good at these men who are so straight-laced and it's smothering them. So oh, in that God. sense, he's just so perfectly cast. The scene where he calls Doc um, after he's arrested him, the scene where he calls him to let him know that Shasta has disappeared, and the way he tries so hard to be cool, she's out there. She went all groovy on us. She's gone, baby. <laughs> she, she, she went all groovy on us. Nothing makes me laugh to tears harder than his stone face trying to be a badass as she went all groovy on us. Baby. <laughs> baby. That that delayed baby at the end. It kills me. Yeah. You, you got to love Doc. Or you got to love Bigfoot. And just to prepare you and to prepare listeners, there is an episode coming up after this one with someone for whom Inherent Vice is not their favorite film. And to take that even one step further, they make it clear Bigfoot is probably their least favorite part of this film. And audience, I gasped. I broke out into a cold sweat. I pulled my shirt over my head to hide. I was very (laughs) upset. I I, I am still reeling from it. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to make it. I'm going to get through this. We're all going to get through this together. Um, Kaylee here will be again in prison at that, at that point, but 
um, either from the Joaquin Phoenix stuff or, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, Joanna Newsom. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how... I don't know how you watch this movie and don't fall in love with Bigfoot and kind of don't want there to be like a big Bigfoot for at least like, I want like a four episode, five or six episode limited Netflix series, the adventures of Bigfoot Bjornsson as he's just knocking hippie doors down and beating people up and then going home at night while his wife falls asleep and just slowly eating frozen chocolate covered bananas in the garage and weeping while out. that just, that, that seems like, a, I don't know, maybe that, I'm letting you all guys, letting everyone into my weird little mental world now. But I think that's <laughs> that'd be a, that'd be a masterpiece. I'd pay for that. I'd watch that. I mean, I would watch uh, like many series, but pretty much any character in this film. To be honest, like I would watch an entire series of Reet being like the, the center of information in this region. I would watch Doc solves or tries to solve crimes everywhere. Um, the uh, everything to do with the brothel and the pussy eater special, like I love, like Hong <laughs> Chow might be my favorite in this film. Actually, just her like the giddiness with which she talks about pussy eater special is so hilarious to me. I love her. Um, but that's one of the reasons it's such a great film is just the richness of it. There's nothing. It, it, there's never a moment that feels wasted to me, even when it is just a film that's kind of luxuriating in itself. Or you know, which it which it does do, but that's tangent, that's part of. That's part of the the greatness of it. If I mean, if you love it, if you hate it, it's probably it's a slog. But that luxuriating is what makes it so special. Is every time I watch this, I think, God, I just want to live in this world. Like I want to sit on Doc's couch, and I want to call someone on his mint green phone um, with the big rotary dial, and I want to go to Pipeline Pizza on Tuesday nights where every slice is like a buck. Like I I want that so badly, and I, it's it it is so rich as you said. It and it, each scene is just it is so overfull with uh, sight gags, and as you said, you know when you when you're dealing with Thomas Pynchon, you have some of the best writing in the world, but you also have some of the best dick and fart jokes you're ever gonna hear. Um, you, you you're not gonna get that anywhere else in a highbrow, uh, film from an artiste like PA, you know, Phantom Thread was woefully lacking in dick and fart jokes, I must say. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's just, it's such an embarrassment of riches, which is just a cheesy phrase. But anyone who knows this film, anyone who loves this film, they know exactly what we're talking about when we say that. And that swings us back around to the question that I, that I asked at the beginning when I said I was talking to the critic um, Anna Swanson, and she asked, you know, one thing that she said she wanted to get from listening to this podcast was there's that thing where if you, anyone that seems to really love inherent vice, you don't love it. Like, yeah, I threw it on like a year or two ago. It's, it holds up. That shit holds up. It's amazing. If you're a fan of inherent vice, a real fan, you're the kind of person that watches like 12 times over the course of like two years. And she said to me, she's like, you know, the one thing I would want to know from, from your guest you have on is why is that? Why do we do that? And I think you just answered that when you said the film is just so rich and so overloaded and you just, every single scene, you kind of just want to live in it. Even if you're being chased by Puck Beaverton, you just, you want to live in that. I mean, there's I just little I... things that I notice every time I watch it. When, when I, even the last time I watched it for this episode, I had on the subtitles and when Shasta Faye pulls away in the car, she says, vroom. And I hadn't noticed that before. <laughs> it's like, that's just such a great little detail. And it's full of those moments. And I kind of hope I never run out of discovering them because it's just so rewarding every single time. The thing that, you know, that's the thing that you were just saying that um, 
you know, when Shasta leaves, you know, she says, Vroom, the thing that I always notice is right before that, when um, Doc is so desperately trying to keep keep her there, he does not want her to leave. And, you know, she's telling him to back away, to watch his toes. And then she steals her, herself. She kind of takes a breath and she holds the, the wheel in both hands. And she just kind of tells herself, I'm going. And then hits the gas. And there's something so sad about, about that. She wants to stay there with Doc, too. And that she just has to go, I'm, I'm going, I'm going. That to me is so, that that right there, you know, I started by saying this whole sequence is the film in microcosm with its sadness and its goofiness mixed together. But even right there, you have the same thing where you have this heart-rending, heartbreaking moment of a woman coming back into a man's life and they both want each other, but she won't let it happen. Um, she's with someone else. He knows that she's not right for him. And as she leaves... She so sadly says, I'm going. But then right after that goes, vroom. Like that's such that's such like a, a just a wonderful pension-esque little goofy joke, a little goofy moment to have at the end as a stinger to that. And that to me, that's inherent vice is, as you said, these wonderful little moments that are so layered in that you're only going to find when you watch it the 13th time around. Oh, yeah. I mean, that emotional richness is so rewarding every single time. I mean, I'm a sucker for a film that batters you over the face with its lack of subtlety and it tells you everything that's going on i was watching um abel ferrara's the addiction last night a film where it treats oh my God. vampirism as a form of heroin addiction and it hammers that home every single moment like it never lets off and i love that kind of thing but what is especially rewarding about inherent vice is just the way that it allows you to slowly absorb every aspect of it whether it is those thematic elements of disillusionment and the end of an era and corruption or if it is just those emotional beats i mean it's an overwhelmingly sad film but i think you only really get the impact of that when you watch it over and over again it's a film that really encourages you to do that if this is a film that's on your wavelength so the scenes that seem so incredibly funny at first like bigfoot in his hippie garb trying to sell these terrible houses where he's using all this slang he doesn't really understand. That's hilarious at first, and once you've seen this film enough times, you realize, oh, wow, this is an incredibly hollow man with dreams that went sour somewhere. He really is just like everyone else in this film and all the people he claims to hate, and that emotionally, it gets to you. So That's another reason I just watch it so many times, is I just feel more every time I watch it. I always laugh. That's always, you know, It's a film where every joke is still really funny to me, but it is just the, um, that feeling of hopelessness and building nihilism and the overwhelming sadness and the grief of losing something that clearly meant so much or was supposed to mean so much to these people. You know, you see that um, with the realization that not only is that this wonderful positive movement of the hippies that was supposed to be wonderful, not only is it really not done all that much for a lot of people, um, but it's now being poisoned from the inside out, basically by people who have sold out, who are snitches, who have, you know, who are informants rather than snitches, to use the, the preferred phrase of, of, of Penny. Uh, and just the history of that alone is emotionally devastating this is a reason i think it's such an interesting companion piece to anyone who's seen once upon a time in hollywood that film i think is more nostalgic for that era um and i do think that there's a certain element that anderson has of you know this seems like it would have been really good fun and it is like it would have been fun to go and listen to these bands and eat pizza and kind of run around the streets in the rain with the guy that you're hopelessly in love with uh but once that haze lifts and the people that are left behind 
they still have to live away. They don't get to leave. Um, they're not the people that are up in, you know, Cielo Drive and the big canyon houses who are going to be protected by the money. You know, these are the ones who are really going to... Frankly, when Reagan gets an even tighter stranglehold on the state, as has already been implied by him stripping away the mental health services with the hospital, like, they're screwed. The fact yeah. that they're not all in jail already is a really big surprise. <laughs> ah, things come to an end. And speaking of running in the rain, as Sorley said, that was that was near the end of their time together. But so it's this movie. It's all about endings. And on that, it's time for you and I to put this thing to an end before I become more and more convinced that you should be hosting instead of me. So I got <laughs> I got to hang up and run away and tell myself I'm I'm still good at this. I, I still have something. I can do this. I can do this. Um, and you need to fortify your locks because you know Joaquin is coming. Someone's coming. Uh, <laughs> Rooney Mara's you know, house sort of is coming after me. Yeah. yeah. Oh God. Jesus, I'm going to get so many cease and desists from this episode. Um, but Kaylee, thank you so much for coming on. I've had an absolute blast talking about this film with you. This this whole podcast is really just an excuse for me to be able to hobnob with people who like Inherent Vice and be able to talk about this goddamn movie over and over again because I love it so much. So thank you so much for coming on today. Um, thank you for letting where... me be part of your sorry. Thank you for letting me be part of your sprawling ensemble. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell people where they can find your work if they want more. Uh, they uh, want to hear more about your feelings. Uh, sure. Uh, if you want to just see all the inherent vice um, fangirl tweets, they are on Twitter at Kaylian. That's uh, C E I L I D H A N N. Uh, if you like, do want to read my pop culture hot takes? I write for ScreenRant.com, Pajiba.com, and Sci-Fi Fangirls. And I also co-host a podcast on industry talk and celeb talk and all the fun things going on in entertainment world called The Hollywood Read. And I co-host that with Sarah Mars from Lady Gossip. And you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. This was so much fun. Thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll talk next time when we learn... Tomorrow's another day. Should be today, right? Well, that sure was a mouthful. The kind you ordinarily can only find at Pipeline Pizza on cheap pizza night. When any size pizza with anything on it costs a flat $1.35. From papaya chunks to pork rinds to boysenberry yogurt to... Well, you get the idea. If it's variety you want, it's variety you'll get. Be it at Pipeline or Old Ensenada Slim's Head Shop down the street from Doc's Bungalow. Or maybe right here as we dig deeper and deeper into that senseless chain of correspondences. Or maybe you'll find it at Wavo's Cafe, where Doc and Dennis learn that the old hippie-hating mad dog is only a today away. We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.